How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're discussing climate news, science, and advocacy. Twenty-five years ago, Congress held the first hearings on human-caused climate change. Since then, scientific knowledge, public understanding, and government policy have all advanced, but not far or fast enough to ward off the impacts of rising carbon pollution. Over the next hour, we will talk about the climate story with our live audience at the Commonwealth Club of California. We're pleased to be joined by two veteran writers who've been covering this story. Paul Hawken is an entrepreneur and author. His most recent book is Blessed Unrest, How the Largest Social Movement in History is Restoring Grace, Justice, and Beauty to the World. Andy Revkin writes the Dot Earth blog for the New York Times. His author of several books, including The North Pole Was Here, Puzzles and Perils at the Top of the World. Please welcome them to Climate One. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you both for coming. Uh, Andy Revkin, let's begin with you. I believe you started writing about climate, your first book, in 1988. Uh, tell us about the importance of that first congressional testimony when yeah. James Hansen laid out the facts. What happened? Well, there was a lot going on that summer, the summer of 1988. The, it was Yellowstone that was on fire that summer, not Yosemite. And that was there were all these... The Midwest was having a scorching drought. Parts of uh, northern Europe were also in a record uh, heat wave. So you had the background of that. You had the success recently, just before then, of the um, Montreal climate, uh, the uh, the Montreal protocol on this other atmospheric threat from CFCs. And the science, and then you had Jim Hansen, who was a scientist who's always a bit out ahead of everyone in terms of uh, his assertions and conclusions about what was going on. And then you had Tim Worth, who was arranging a hearing, uh, kept the windows open on a hot day, so it was Senator theatrically appropriate. Yeah. And uh, and it became a news story. Um, and I, that, I did my first long piece that, that fall, uh, a cover story in uh, Discover magazine on the greenhouse effect. Um, I had already been writing about the climate, human-climate relationship in the mid-'80s. It was nuclear winter. During the Cold War, uh, there was this idea that if you had enough cities incinerated, We'd cool the climate, and some of the same people were working using the models to, to to look at that. We're looking at the greenhouse effect as well. So I, I had already known all these scientists, and kind of that was. But that was a, there was the year that was the first year really kind of peaked, and then we went to sleep, of course, uh, for a long time. Well, Jim Hansen has been here. He talked about he thought he went and presented the facts. Thought, okay, here's concern, here's some information. Yeah. Went back to his lab and thought that action would follow. And Paul Hawken, that didn't happen. No. One of the most frustrating things that the IPC scientists have learned is that facts don't change people's minds. I mean, they think it should, and it changes their minds, but it doesn't change the public. In fact, and sometimes factual onslaughts can actually cause people to dig in to their own point of view, to their own framing of the world. And so what's happened is that in the absence of response, then people try to ratchet up the the predictions, the prophecies, the dire consequences of climate change, which has very robust data and science to support it. So it's not it's not a wrong, uh, but in the process the, of catastrophizing the future, they have created, in a sense, the resistance to it because they are now being catastrophized. Because if you say this and this is, this is going to happen and then the deniers and other people and come back and say, you are taking away our children's future, our security, our jobs. What you want is an elitist vision of the world. And what's lost in all that is the science. And are you saying that scientists exaggerate the truth? No. What I'm saying is that given the data and the success of IPCC reports, you get successively more dire uh, predictions of what's going to happen going forward, even though the IPCC reports tend to be their consensus based and they actually tend to be conservative. So what we've seen uh, is that after the uh, report comes out that actually the consequences or climate variability or volatility is actually greater than what was predicted. 
Andy Revkin, do you think that some of this, the facts get overstated, that, that they perhaps get interpreted in their most extreme case by some scientists? Because there's a range well, of scenarios, and they take the, sort of the worst-case scenario because they think they need to make a point to wake people up? Uh, that has happened. Some, some scientists, like some human beings who aren't scientists, are, get, are very activist in their passions about an issue, and some people have downplayed the, 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 the real uncertainties around some of the key factors uh, related to global warming, the rate of sea level rise. We don't know whether it's going to be three feet, two feet, or or it's pretty unlikely to be. It's actually extremely unlikely to be more than five or six feet in, by 2100. But how do you sort of convey that a sense of urgency? How do you get people activated to decarbonize the growing energy menu for the world uh, in the face of complexity? And that's been hard for some people to grapple with. So they tend to kind of go for the easy hit, you know, Sandy is us. Uh, there was that Business Week, it's Global Warming Stupid uh, headline, which was complete. That story was, the headline was very catchy, but it didn't actually say anything. Uh, Sandy was not our doing. Sea level rise is partially <coughs> our doing, but the other aspects of that storm were very complicated. So so overstating the case, I think, can be harmful. So let's stay on that for a minute. I mean, Sandy... And by the way, it was the media. It's more the media activist uh, NGO community that's done that than the scientists themselves. Yeah. Right, and uh, so Sandy happened with warm seas, high seas, warm seas, warm water expands. So would you say there's a human contribution to Sandy? Not that... Through sea level rise, yes. But the other aspects of the way that was portrayed are really hard to sell when you look at the science. Uh, We've had a declining rate of landfalling hurricanes since the 19th century in the United States. So if you really think that global warming is a hurricane peril to the United States, someone could make a counter-argument that, well, there's been declining rates of, sea, of landfalls of hurricane-force storms, so where's your argument? Right. Uh, what progress has been made since the first congressional testimonies in terms of general understanding? 25 years, have we made any progress in terms of basic understanding of, of the science and public recognition, Paul Hawken, of, of the basic climate situation? Well, one thing that's gotten conflated is the core science, which was known in 1896, which is impeccable, irrefutable, uh, why triatomic particles, you know, basically re-radiate infrared radiation back to Earth. I mean, whether it's water or CO2 or nitrous oxide, I mean, this is, no one's ever doubted that. No one's ever questioned it. Not the most ardent denier has questioned that. That's physics. What has uh, happened, of course, is people trying to interpret, well, what is the consequence of increased heat? And uh, we don't know. And so the interpretation is difficult because science doesn't like to make predictions. It's not, it's not, it's not set up to do that very well unless you can do something rep- repetitively, and then it does it very well. But this is a complex nonlinear system that is unpredictable by its nature. So um, we should, I think, in our conversation say, look, we do understand the mechanism. You know, Now, let's all talk about our interpretation, because it is interpretation. And interpretation is getting more and more robust. I mean, we've done cores and, you know, ice cores and now sea cores, you know, going back 20 million years. I mean, we have a very, very good picture of what has happened in the past um, from uh, these ice and, and mud cores so we have a very, very good map of the past. And so we can now make some very good predictions of the Eemian period, which is, what, 125,000 years ago, was the last interglacial period. It was only 300, not even 300 ppm, parts per million. That's a measure of carbon in the atmosphere. Carbon in the atmosphere, yeah. And you had elephants and giraffes, you know, basically prancing around Germany and hippopotami you know, lounging in the Thames estuary because the water was 20 feet higher and um, alligators snaking around in Alaska. So we do know, you know, that in interglacial periods, this is just, there can be extraordinary rises in temperature, which are fine for Earth, but not so good for a civilization that's based on climatic stability. And so these models, uh, it's not good at predicting. It's complex. It's hard for ba- people to understand. And then we have this rise of deniers and skeptics, which you say part of the the advocates are partly responsible for. Would you agree, Andy Revkin, that the deniers yeah, are partly there's shared? I, I, I think they kind of feed on each other in a way. And unfortunately, a lot of reality gets lost in the, in the mix. <laughs> uh, I did a piece for the Weekend Review section in 2006 called Yelling Fire on a Hot Planet, in which, which you just Google for Yelling Fire and Revkin and you'll find it. And um, 
it laid out what's happened since, uh, which is this um, heated argument develops between people who are so eager for action that they kind of d- downplay real complexity and people who are eager for stasis on energy who have the really easy task because maintaining stasis is the easiest thing to do. Keeping you all in this room or wherever you're sitting online is really easy. Making you move is really hard. So, so it's like it's an asymmetrical fight in that sense. And so when you inflame those edges, I don't think it's helpful in the long run to the, the people who uh, stay. It actually helps those who want to maintain stasis, and that's why we've been locked for so long on, on this issue, I think. By the way, one thing that's really important is the same social science that Paul explains so beautifully that lays out why we're not good at recognizing this kind of problem has revealed that there's while there's deep divisions on this thing called global warming, there's a lot of commonality on energy energy wisdom, efficiency, uh, the need for uh, innovation and research. So, so the, the you can look for you look at this and you can see paths forward for sure, despite this kind of deadlock. To, to my mind, you have written about inconvenient minds and the climate in our heads. So, say a little bit, yeah. right? Is that what you're talking about? Well, that's that. I think Paul and I have both participated periodically in a series of events in. Um, at the Garrison Institute called Climate, Mind, and Behavior. And the climate in here is far scarier than anything I've, you know, I've been to the North Pole. I've, st- I've stood on cracking sea ice at the North Pole on a two-and-a-half-mile deep ocean. I've seen burning Amazon forests. I've seen a lot of aspects of how climate changes the world. But, but when I dug in on the social science work about the, the climate in here, it was the, by far the most unnerving stuff because it shows you beautifully or horribly, depending on your point of view, how bad how bad a fit there is between this issue and our our reflexes as as not just as individuals but as societies we tend to we don't we discount long term um, big bad impact kind of kind of threats um, whether it relates to security issues or climate issues we're hardwired to look at there's a tiger in front of us we know that tiger yeah. could come eat us it's physical we, there's a precedent something abstract like carbon dioxide you can't see touch see we're all exhaling it it's yeah we're part of it it's so yeah. paul hawken is this ultimately a psychological problem well sure i mean some woman said the mine is a dangerous neighborhood don't go alone <laughs> you know um it the uh, you know we're projecting back out of the world every fear and um concern and worry uh and also we're projecting sort of promethean sort of things you know like i'm a hero many of the deniers see themselves in a heroic posture they see themselves fighting against this extraordinary plot against uh, Americans, usually not humanity, and um, so their their narrative is one of you know Joan of Arc. I mean, and so in that in that kind of mind space, uh, no amount of data or facts are going to change their point of view. So I feel like the way forward is is not is is not to fight, is not to win. Because fighting and winning is what got us into this situation. It's not going to get us out. And if we're going to get out of it, we have to radically change how we communicate to each other so that it's inclusive and listening and um, generous. And right now, the communication tends to be arch and righteous and uh, uh, sort of uh, startling in a way that makes it difficult for people to really, uh, um, you know, integrate that, that, that message. But most important, and you saw a little clip of that, is this idea there's not much you can do. And I want to talk about that because I feel like that is so upside down and backwards. And we, on the governmental level and on the academic level, have really rubbed America's noses in that idea that there's not much you can do about it. And I think that is the most disempowering thing of all. Well, let's, we'll get to that. But first, you mentioned heroes. Does that mean we don't need any heroes? Or that we ought to have a different concept of what a hero is. I think the age of heroes is over. The, the charismatic male vertebrate coming to save us. And I think we're looking for love in all the wrong places. Washington, D.C. being one of them. And COP15 in Kyoto being another one. You know, we're looking for these turning points for this, you know, Archimedean lever where something changes overnight. We could have that with the fall of the Berlin Wall. I mean, that was a truly, you know, game-changing event. There's no game-changing event for climate change. This is us for the whole century and the century following. So even though most people don't think long-term, we still have to plan that way. And in order to do that, it needs a different narrative. It's a different story than the one of uh, apocalyptic uh, heroism. What's the new story, Andy Rebkin? Well, 
we have to move from a conversation uh, that's focused on goals, like 80 by 2050, to a conversation that's focused on traits, M- making sure that our societies and, our, and ourselves as individuals and our children particularly have, the, have a set of traits that maximize the possibility for movement in a direction that's sustainable. And uh, the traits are uh, essentially communicative nature, Bend, stretch, reach, teach. There's a whole, there was a list. I should make a song out of it because it's almost (laughs) like poem. But bending obviously is resilience, making sure when we look at New York City going forward, we're not thinking about building better seawalls around neighborhoods that are history. Finding a new politics so you can, you can have a, a softer, flexible response that lets nature take back places that are going to be taken back, even if we have a good climate policy. Um, stretch is empathy, making sure we understand you know, I wrote in 2007, we did a series in the New York Times called The Climate Divide that basically says everyone in this room, we're all insulated by our wealth and technology from climate risk. We, there's there's some counter arguments to that, but they, they don't really hold up in the long run. Essentially, the vulnerability to climate change is in places like sub-Saharan Africa. So the more we have the capacity to understand and empathize with people in, in developing countries, uh, the better, the more likely we are to have po- policies, World Bank investments, um, or USAID programs that can help uh, foster resilience in those kinds of places. And then reach, teach. Reach is innovation, reaching for the next thing. And teaching, of course, is just making sure we educate people on what a greenhouse gas is. The basic science still matters, even though it can harden views. Uh, having an understanding of how science works is really important, that kind of thing. So there, there's a path. But it's not the old idea that of you know we need to get to 350 or we need to have 80 by 2050 in our, as a law when we know we can't get there, and, and if we do, we'll have cheated in many, many ways to make that happen. It, I just think it's really vital to my, and, to my mind. And do we need a different relationship with nature? It sounds like the, uh, human dominion over nature, uh, you, that needs to change. The idea we can somehow engineer our way out of this by seawalls and engineering. Well, you know, we may in the, in the end need geoengineering of some kind. Uh, I don't think that... Which is putting particulates in the air. Well, that one I don't think you're going to see any progress on. But but thinking about ways to manage the atmosphere um, in the long haul, whether it's direct capture of CO2, whether it's uh, engineered uh, uh, photosynthesis to... You know, if we're not thinking about that as another thing, then we're not really investing for that worst case. And the worst case could be something that will... You know, we don't want to take the planetary... Thermostat outside our, our livability zone, for sure. And that, given our the long nature of our dis- disengagement with fossil fuels, we may have to think about things like that as well. If you're just joining us on the radio, Andy Revkin is a writer for the New York Times Earth blog. Our other guest today at Climate One is author and entrepreneur Paul Hawk, and I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Paul, you wrote, co-authored the book, Natural Capitalism. Do we need to think, bring in mm-hmm. the, the different concepts of nature into markets here and a different relationship with nature? Oh, yeah. The, one of the things that's happened <clears throat> in the climate conversation is that carbon has become demonized. Carbon pollution, carbon footprint, and... We, we had a six-year-old, we had a sixth grader here not too long ago. He was in a school play where Mr. Carbon was the villain, and, yeah. and he played Mr. Carbon, and that was the bad guy, and, <laughs> and Mr. Carbon was bad to the polar bear, and so that, yeah. very much Carbon was a villain in a yeah. school play. This is, this is really sort of extraordinary um, misinterpretation and distortion of, of life. I was in a climate ride from Stinson Beach to the city, and we were going along Polk Street, and I was going to be the speaker at the end of the ride, but there was a chant, and it was da-da-da-da-da-da-da, we are carbon-free, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da, we are carbon-free. I'm looking around, we had coffee and bagels, you know, at the Presidio, and and carbohydrates and, you know, charred coffee beans. And then we're all ri- riding carbon-frame bicycles, you know. <laughs> and, and I was thinking, boy, you better hope you're not carbon-free. And, um, and I feel like carbon is our ally. It's the answer to our nightmare not our nightmare. Combustion of hydrocarbons is a problem, no question about it. It's not even hydrocarbons, it's their combustion. And um, so we need to separate that out primarily because uh, one of the, you know, two or three, but one of the nearly the largest contributor uh, to greenhouse gases is land. And it's our forestry practices, our farming practices, uh, uh, what we do with our grasslands or how they're drying up. And that's almost 3.9 billion tons a year. Um, and the largest sink of carbon in the, on Earth is the land. 
And so we're looking to kind of slap on Chinese-made solar panels onto our lifestyle as if that's going to solve the problem. That won't even come close to it. And so much of the thinking about climate change is really about how can we change the least and and create the most stasis and actually keep the de facto, you know, the status quo. Uh, and so there's always this sort of negotiation in people's minds about that. But from my point of view, climate change is the transformation that transforms everything. There will be nothing that we do say or see in the world that will be the same after this century. Nothing. It will transform everything. And the sooner we understand that, the more we can participate in a meaningful way. Because the, the right now, the attitude is that climate change is happening to us. And if you think it's happening to us, then you're going to look for villains and demons and these terrible people out there that are doing it to you and they should have known better and we'll, we'll sell off their thing, we'll defund them, we'll, we'll get them out of our portfolio, we'll, you know, tell everybody that oil companies are just evil, you know, and, and drive back to work or to home, you know. <laughs> and uh, instead of the idea that actually climate change is happening for us. And, and for us means that it just opens up an extraordinary amount of innovation, possibility. And like carbon itself, and you know, carbon is the element that holds hands and collaborates in nature. <laughs> and we're going to have to be like carbon and hold hands and collaborates. And to do that, we have to change how we talk to each other and how we listen. So it's a big opportunity. Certainly we've had huge. investors here who see this as a huge investment opportunity to make money and, and do things in a better, cleaner way. So this is not a, a, a bummer or a drag. It's, it's a great opportunity. Andy Repkin? Well, no, I love the way Paul uh, articulated that because essentially climate change, the greenhouse effect that we're building um, is the leading edge of our – it's enforcing upon us more than anything else uh, that we're in an age in which we – have our hands on all the control systems of a planet. And the anthrop- whether you call it the Anthropocene, or as the Brits do, or the Anthropocene, or whatever, or the Anthropocene, as I did in 1992 in a book. Silly. Um, it's, it's like the parent who's sort of slapping the kid a little bit in the gentle way and saying, you know, you're outside, don't step into the road or you're going to get in trouble. It's, it's giving us a sense, of whether we want to or not, uh, that we, there are limits to the way the planet works, and that if we don't, we have to paint within the lines sometimes. And those lines are enforced uh, to a certain large extent by forces that that are big, and, and we can't sort of, again, we can't engineer the whole system in a perfect way, but we have to figure out what to do. Uh, one, one meta, there are many metaphors for this, but one was, it's just like we've woken up at the wheel of a car going 50 miles an hour, and we've never... Not only have we never driven before, but there isn't a driver's manual. There actually isn't. No one really knows how the system works. So, and we're going down a hill, and, and there's curves ahead, kind of like Monterey or something. And it's foggy, and it's getting foggier. So, ooh, what do you do? Well, the first thing you do is try to figure out how to slow down. Um, how does this work? And that's kind of the position we're in as a species right now. Paul Hawken, you mentioned uh, sort of finding demons. That carbon is not the enemy. The enemy uh, might be us if we're all contributing to it. But I want to ask you about Bill McKibben, who is out there saying fossil fuel companies are bad, we should not own their stocks. Is that demonization counterproductive? I don't know. I, uh, Bill's a very close friend, and I really admire his work and what he's done. And um, it's just not my way, put it that way. And I'm not in a position to judge others and to see, because I think there's a complex collective wisdom in humanity it manifests itself in many different ways. And I feel like um, Bill and Jim have done a, a, a lot of good. In Jim being, Hansen, the NASA Jim scientist. Hansen, yeah, have done a lot of good in being the Paul Revere's and being the people who basically ring the alarm loud and clear, often and, and if sometimes shrill. So I don't see it that way. I, I At the same time, I, I just think it's not so much a, a, a useful path forward because... What if every college divested? Then what? I always look at it from that then what point of view. Then what? And then what? And then what? If the then what's don't take us to a livable future in which everybody can participate and, and, and be cared for, then it's not a very interesting then what for me. And um, so the short-term uh, exigencies that Bill describes and, you know, as really are very activating for activists, you know, who want to feel 
they can do something, but I feel like there's better things to do. The reason I think they do that is because they feel disempowered, and they join a lot of other people who aren't saying anything. And as per that video clip that was showed earlier, there's nearly nothing you can do, honey. And you know, and that makes people really talk about dividing the populace, because then you're saying, well, there's some group of people who do know, and I, I aver. There is a climate, you know, mitigation project, uh, you know, in, initiative at Princeton, uh, started in 2000. Robert Sokolow and Stephen Pakala, they did the stabilization wedges, um, and these are each would contribute a gigaton a year in terms of re- reduced emissions at some point or another. And if you look at that list of 15 wedges, uh, nine of them only utility companies can do. Two of them. Only big companies can do, appliance and car companies. Uh, two and a half of them, individuals can do something about. So what you're presenting, and some of them are like, you know, hydrogen, fossil-based hydrogen fuel with CCS, carbon capture systems. It's like, huh? <laughs> like, we, nobody does that. We don't know how to do that right now. And say, that's the plan. The plan for who? Who's going to take this up? So what we've done is presented solutions to people that are basically... 10, 20, 30-year lead times. And then at the same time, we're saying, 20, 30 years, we're in big trouble. Uh, And so I feel like we need to present the ability and the agency with which people can participate on all levels, from the individual to the neighborhood to the community to the city to the business to the utility to the farmer to the forester to the grassland uh, uh, owners or uh, monitors or stewards uh, etc. And that way, then we know what we can do right now. And right now, we don't know. There is no place you can go, really, and find out what all of us do. We're brilliant. Humans are problem-solving animals. You would never know it reading the press. Well, you can go to Andy's blog, but he's written a lot of this stuff uh, for many years. Uh, and you're writing a book about that topic. What can an average person do listening to this? Where do I start? If I've changed my light bulbs, okay, what next? Andy Revkin, what can an individual do? Well, just in building a little bit, I'll just focus on schools for a second just because it builds out of what Paul was saying. Um, the one thing I would love to see in curricula um, across the country is uh, a field trip to your school's boiler room. You know, so every kid... That sounds it, exciting. Yeah. No, it is. It actually can be. I mean, you know, it's like going into the basement. For most kids, going into the basement is kind of a scary thing. But getting kids to understand where their energy comes from, what these systems are like, uh, that a school is a system, that uh, having the kids as part of their learning uh, look at the monthly electric bills and say, hey, what can we do to um, limit our electricity use or to get comfortable with the reality, hey, you know, we use a lot of oil because we're in the Northeast and we have to burn oil to fuel our school. So... Just getting them cognizant of that energy matters, that um, that would be one right away. Um, I was just at this Verge meeting here uh, yesterday um, where they had an interesting microgrid set up where you can see the electricity flow. Little LED bulbs are showing you through this room um, where they had their generation from walnut shells being uh, combusted uh, outside the building. And, uh, you know, having anything that sort of illustrates energy use so that's not just an invisible plug-into-the-wall kind of idea, I think, is a useful thing. So education, there's enormous opportunities in education. Um, yeah, our energy literacy is pretty low. We flip the switch. We don't really know what's yeah. behind what's, what's no, behind no, no. all those systems. I, I want to ask you about another area where individuals are coming together in something called living room conversations. This is something where a co-founder of MoveOn.org, mm-hmm. very liberal organization, has partnered with a founder, a Tea Party person, mm-hmm. Tea Party and MoveOn.org. Just get wow. your head around that for a minute. And then they're coming together in people's living rooms to have conversations about what they have in common and, and it's values-based. Paul Hawken, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. John's doing that, John Blades. And, and that's exactly what needs to happen because, as I was saying earlier, if we demonize the donors, we demonize people as other, you know, then we're lost. We are absolutely lost. We will not solve a thing. We'll go right through the century, right over the cliff. So in order to come together, we need to listen. And the fact of the matter is, whether right or left, you know, sometimes the first way people express the truth is anger. There's a core truth in angry outbursts. And there's truth in what the Tea Party says. There's truth there. And if that gives you the shudders, so be it. But they're talking about the scale and size of government. There's a core truth there. 
I know as a person who's dealt with the government, it's like, oh my gosh, this does not work. I mean, I'm a business person. I know how something should work, kind of. And I deal with institutions where it's, and so do the veterans. You know, the Veterans Administration doesn't work for our veterans. We're not taking care of our men and women who are injured. So, so the Tea Party has a point, but what happens is it's so polarized. And so what Joan is doing is bring us together in a safe environment so that we can listen and there's a methodology to it. Andy Redkin? Um, I've, I've been quietly trying to nudge the Times to create a feature. We have a, the, a feature on the op-ed, opinion side of the paper called Room for Debate. Mm-hmm. I want to create one called Room for Agreement, yeah. uh, which uh, I've... Does which that is sell what, papers? I don't know. Yeah. Well, I don't know yet, but you know, that's what I try to do on my blog is to find uh, spots of overlap. And I'll give you one example. Uh, the Heritage Foundation... Uh, wants to end energy subsidies, right, all across the board. They want to flat, you know, let's go to... And and there's a lot of people who focus on uh, renewable energy who would like to end fossil energy subsidies. So there's overlap there. I'd like to see that conversation play out. You know, obviously it would be a tough conversation, but when you see overlap, at least that's where I try to focus. Uh, these two ships are moving in that same direction. One other example quickly is on uh, an area vulnerable to... Um, climate hazards like uh, coastal flooding and the wildfires in the West, um, there's a pretty libertarian economic, economic group, Headwaters Economics, that's done a great summary of things you can do now to limit exposure to wildfire hazard in places like the red zone of Colorado. And uh, many of them are about ending subsidies that are that basically, I'll give you one example, uh, are, we still will give a, a federal tax break for a second mortgage on a house in the red zone of Colorado. In other words, in an area we know is going to burn and that we'll have to have federal firefighters come to put out the fire. And to me, that's kind of loony. So finding those opportunities could involve a, a conversation with libertarians who would see that as a very much a, as the same kind of agenda. And, but if you have the whole fight around global warming, uh, if you look at wildfires through the global warming lens, you're not going to see that opportunity. There's another group called R Street Advisors that came out of the conservative uh, Heartland Institute, and they're cause is really insurance reform, not subsidizing condos on the beach in Miami that are in harm's way that then uh, taxpayers have to bail out a couple of times, pricing risk differently. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the six Americas, and there's some work that's done that shows people are in different places in America on this issue, on this, uh, and and how they respond to this. Andy Redkin, tell us about that. I've followed this uh, effort for a while. It started in the late 2000s, um, social scientists at Yale and, and George Mason have been doing surveys that basically have delineated there are six kinds of us when you look at the climate problem. We have six different kinds of reactions, ranging from uh, disengaged, uh, dismissive to alarmed. And I think you all know at least somebody in one of those boxes. Alarmed, concerned, yeah. Yeah, disengaged, doubtful, doubtful. And uh, they just did the same thing in India, and they have they have an uninformed category where people just, you know, most people in developing countries just don't even know about this question. It's not in China, India, it's not even on the radar. So, um, and you can see what's really, what I love about that work is they do a set of questions that um, allows you to see these opportunities. Some people who are completely divergent on global warming um, we're in strong accord on having an incentive for um, actually having a mandate for high-efficiency vehicles, uh, even if it costs more. You, you can see people are – the only people who didn't think that was a good idea were the absolute dismissives on global warming. But everyone else was like either the maybe or yes. And, and that, again, to me says there's real opportunities. The same work that defines the – this sort of reveals these divides on, on issues, reveals uh, places to go as well. And what category are you in? Are you alarmed or concerned? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Because some I, people think you're not alarmed. I'm not. concerned. I'm concerned. Because yeah, some people think... I'm not alarmed. Not alarmed. No, okay. because I, I, I think we're going to find a way path forward. I don't think the world in 2100 will be a world that anyone in this room will feel comfortable about from the vantage point of 2013. But people who are born, who are my age in 2100 will have a shifted baseline of perception. And for them, rising seas will be the norm. For them, um, but for my children already, you know, I wrote this book about the changing North Pole after I went there. And um, my book, I looked at the books on my shelf, some of which were my dad's, and they were all about the frozen north. And these explorers, white guys who went up there and froze to death because they didn't follow the 
they, they didn't put on the clothing that the Eskimos had, the Inuits. And, and the book I wrote is about the new norm is that the Arctic is in flux, that polar bears um, are not being shot as much, so that's good, but they're facing all these new threats because of climate change. And so there's a new norm. In other words, kids today, for them, the Arctic is a, is a snooze, the fact that it's there's shipping and and all that. So, so uh, we'll get, we'll move forward. It'll be a world that I look forward with. I look forward to in the sense of, of I lament the loss of the norms that we had uh, in our time. But I don't think people, that, I, I can't make a judgment for the people in 2100 about whether that's bad or good. It's just the new normal. The one new normal is uh, very coral dying, which has tremendous Im- impacts for ocean ecosystems. But uh, there too. But, but what's but what we lament is the reefs. The corals, as a as a group of animals, will will long outlive us on this planet. They the reefs that we know, like the Great Barrier Reef, are are in trouble. But they're the base of the food pyramid, which can can disrupt ocean ecosystems. Which yeah, but well, but again, economies. You know, in a very brutal way, I have to say, I I think people in twenty one hundred will have their nature. As we said, on video games, on video <laughs> no, 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 no. There'll be stuff. It'll be a jelly, a jellyfied ocean. We know that, but people maybe will be fishing for jellyfish. You've probably read about the whole jellyfish expansion. Paul Hawken, are you alarmed or concerned? Um, <clears throat> I am uh, lit up. <laughs> um, Ooh, I like that. <laughs> I'm. Wendell Berry said, "Be joyful, though you know all the facts." You know, and um, so you can know all the facts and then not go into a deep depression. Um, and really, when you think about it, when we were kids and we go to the playground and there's two sandboxes and in one sandbox, all the kids were fighting and screaming and, and throwing things at each other. And the other sandbox, they were really having a good time. You know, we went to that other sandbox, you know. And so the same thing has, I speak to this, you know, climate change movement, which is if we're going to make change, you know, we have to actually dance, sing and celebrate. We're not dancing and celebrating about the changes. We're about the um, uh, really about humanity itself, you know. And as I said, we're a problem-solving animal. I mean, George Bush, when Rio, the original Rio, you know, said that American life, you know, style's not negotiable. Yeah, is not up for negotiation. And he was so right uh, because nature doesn't negotiate. <laughs> There's no negotiation, absolutely. So this movement is really about coming alive. It's about people coming alive. We are life. It's not out there somewhere. It's not happening to us. And so that understanding and that um, embodiment and experience it is extraordinary. It's, it's always there for everyone, every second. And in that place, you know, we feel with respect and honor our connection to all of the beings. Yes, the Koch brothers. Yes, people who seem anathema to everything we hold true and sacred. Um, they are us. And in that state of mind, the solutions rise because the solutions in nature surpass what we know is possible. That yeah. sounds wonderful to me. And I wonder how that translates to, I mean, we live in one of the most beautiful areas, wealthiest areas in the world. And I wonder, how is that accessible to people in developing countries or other parts of the world where they have a harder life, and climate is hitting them. To be Absolutely, so and, and I, I couldn't agree more. In fact, any generalization you make between San Francisco and San Jose should be highly suspect because it's the richest place in the world, and you're in a bubble. You're in a huge bubble. Like, oh, this really works. Go in any direction. There's you'll find out that it's different out there. But uh, So I agree, but nevertheless, the idea that somehow we're going to figure out the world in a rectangular screen is just not correct. It's not going to happen. And that's what you see more and more is, you know, basically Internet trolls fighting and arguing about information they've gotten on the Internet. And that is not a way to create uh, a consensus. It's not a way to create solutions. And I feel like there are hundreds of solutions that are there beckoning. And in Amy Lovin's um, parlance, there are no regret solutions, which is if we do them, and for whatever reason, none of us believe it, that climate change is not going to happen, we are so much better off if we do them than if we don't. And those solutions are legion. And that's what we should be moving towards. Because, as Andy said, in pretty much all six Americas, maybe not dismissive in some cases, everybody would adopt those and move toward them. Because it makes for a better life. It, 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 it connects us to each other in ways we're not connected. 
And so this is why I say climate change is happening for us, because it is beckoning us <laughs> to change in a way that brings us together, not divides us. There's one uh, company here, Solar Mosaic, is a company that tries to connect yeah. people more closely between their money locally and solar projects. And the idea is that you, a, lot, a lot of us invest, we put our money in some fund, we don't right. really know where it goes, wh- wh- what's done with it, but investing locally, eating locally. So is that part of what you're talking about? Oh, Andy Redfield? Yeah, yeah, Billy yeah. Parrish, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, I, I, I wrote a piece about Billy Parrish. I first wrote about Billy Parrish. He's the in, founder, founder one of them, yeah, in 2005, when he was a young college student or recent grad sitting in the hallway at the Montreal Climate Treaty Talks with posters saying, you know, this is our climate, which is great. Highly motivated young man, using the skills he had at the time the best way he could. But he's like a fish navigating upstream. There are rocks and boulders. And, and he had the wisdom, like someone else I wrote about a long time ago, I'll, I'll explain in a minute, uh, to recognize that was not really going to change the world. And here he is now as a young uh, solar innovator, looking, creating an innovation in the place that needs to be focused on, which is policy, um, finance. The, I think a lot of people have a misperception that innovation is the realm of of a better photovoltaic panel, and that's part of it. Engineering matters, but it's our social systems that impede uh, progress often, and, and the, the, the technologies are there um, to some extent, but you, how do you facilitate them? So Billy Parrish is the uh, embodiment of the kind of um, traits that I see, as I said earlier, that, that get us uh, from point A to point B. The person I wrote about in 1990 who did this was Chico Mendez. Hang on, that's one point. Yeah. The, the innovation that Billy Parrish did was to make it legal to invest for 5 or $50 right. into a particular – that took a lot of lawyerly work. Right. Uh, but it opened up a new investment category for people. Yeah, and I that. put 400 bucks in to see how it works. Okay. <laughs> but, but Chico Mendez in the Amazon in the 80s was a guy who was a communist. Uh, that didn't work. He became a socialist. That was kind of working not so much. He he was trying to fight to limit uh, the road construction in the Amazon, and then he realized that a lot of one of the uh, reasons it was happening was uh, world uh, the Inter-American Development Bank was sending money. So he he used um, he developed uh, relationships with environmental groups. He went to Washington. He saw an opportunity out there, not in his little pond, but out in the big global pond, and it made a difference. Unfortunately, he got murdered in the end, but. Uh, that was because he was a Brazilian macho guy who didn't want to uh, wanted to fight instead of run. But but that's the same characteristic. This this characteristic. This isn't working. What can I do? This is not working. This this strategy isn't working. What else can I do? And to move forward, keep but with a goal in mind. If you're just joining us, we're talking about uh, climate science communication advocacy with Andy Revkin, a writer for the New York Times dot Earth blog, and Paul Hawken, the author and entrepreneur. I'm Greg Dalton. I want to ask you a bit about the media, and then we're going to go to audience questions. Um, Media, uh, Andy Revkin, uh, has the mainstream media done an adequate job covering the complexity and severity of the climate situation? No. I've written three book chapters about this. So, uh, we can go into detail. So that the headline is that, that initially there was a uh, balance bias where they gave no, no, that's deniers the, the, the bias, equal the, weight to the mainstream side. I think the balance issue is a red herring or whatever. Um, the real issue, and let me just jump to a completely different category, healthcare. Um, NPR did a piece after the healthcare bill first passed. After it passed, after months of debate and struggle, they, they did a piece um, that said, now all the media are now writing stories about what this bill means for you. But we weren't <laughs> doing it actually... During the debate, during the debate, we covered it as if it was some kind of sporting event, and we did the same thing with the climate bill. The media covered it. Oh, the Republicans are up. Oh, they're down. And and it's and that coverage doesn't actually tell you anything about what this bill would mean, what aspects of it are technically wrong, uh, what aspects of it would matter. So so that's a bigger problem than the the false debate thing. You know, that's been part of the media coverage of many things for the longest time, whether it's uh, guns or, or or greenhouse gases. And, and I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying that, and there, there are ways to train around us. But we're also heading to a world now where the, 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 the big media are a shrinking wedge of this global pie of ways to communicate. So there's ways for information to flow um, uh, with or without our help that I think could surmount some of those issues. Paul Hawken? No, I, I agree. I mean, the media um, is – I mean, when New Yorker published an article about the Weather Channel, and the Weather Channel made uh, sort of sent a memo out that when you ever have extreme weather, which is a big draw on Weather Channel, 
Good I mean, for ratings. The, ra- yeah. oh, the ratings. The guys with the suits. Oh man, I just love it. Out on you know, the beach. see the water rushing, the cars going by, you know, flooded, and you know, just love it. Never to talk about climate change because it bums out the advertisers and it bums out the viewers. So they actually make sure. Now, scientifically, there's some truth in that, which is you cannot correlate uh, an extreme weather event with climate change, and that's just bad science. But but what you could say is, you know, this is trending. <laughs> there was this trending in a way that <clears throat> could be very much correlated. But uh, and some scientists would say that correlate that day is getting closer to putting human fingerprints on individual. Well, it's already but, there for heat, heat, yeah, heat yeah, events, heat but event. not for precipitation. Okay, uh, yeah, that's not, more complicated. Yeah. So, yeah, the media has been. Uh, it, you can't have a democracy unless people have a free flow of unbiased information, and we do not. Andy Revkin, quickly, we're going to audience. Is there a pause? Is the rate of global warming slowing down? Ah, well, it depends on your time scale. Um, the last 10 or 15 years is the... Yeah, well, there, the, the world has not warmed uh, in 15 years. Uh, but that's because 1998, the last big warm El Nino moment, was the, at the uh, sort of near, uh, the older end of that, what seems to be a plateau. Now, there's a lot of science involved in digging in on what's going on. Um, scientists have understood for a long time that climate change is not a smooth curve. It's, there's lots of wiggles on many timescales from decades to years. So it's not unexpected to have a pause. But the models have failed, to, didn't really capture this. And the models are, but people then, what happens is, of course, the naysayers say, uh, the models are wrong, therefore there's no such thing as global warming. And the models are only one of the aspects of how we know what's going on with the climate system and, and human effects. We're going to invite your participation. We're going to put a microphone right here and invite you to come join us. I have a question. What percentage of the global warming can be attributed to the United States of America Uh and everybody else? And then what specific goals or or how do we deal with the um, pollution from the second, third world countries like China, India, etc.? That is one of, that's one of the super wicked aspects of this problem. And I use that phrase in the technical sense. There are wicked problems economists talk about and military strategists. And um, this one's super wicked. And I was just in China a week ago interviewing their chief climate strategist, uh, uh, Zhou Ji. And the first thing he said was 70% of the greenhouse buildup that's in the atmosphere so far is our, our doing, meaning countries that benefited from the Industrial Revolution so far. And China has made this point very clear in every negotiation and every conversation I've had with them. And that he would say that that helps articulate who has most responsibility, even as China is vastly increasing its greenhouse gases going forward. There's this built-in obligation that we have to step first. Uh, this common but differentiated responsibilities is how they put it. Um, and boy, But again, if you're the United States government now and you see that China and India are the dominant source of emissions for the next 50 years, 40 years, and, and, you, and you see that our emissions rates are, are actually declining uh, to a certain extent, then you have a strong posture to say, no, 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 it's time for you guys to step as well. And that's why I don't count on climate treaties being the, the, the grand mechanism that will um, solve this problem, among, among other things. Let's have our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi. Um, in, me, in many view, in many issues, the, the view that the, the world is changing and it's okay if it's different in the future than it is now is associated with uh, liberal politics, while the view that the world of the present and the recent past uh, should be preserved at virtually all costs is associated with conservative politics. Why is it, do you think, that in, with regard to climate change, uh, this is reversed and the view that uh, – the recent past uh, must be preserved is a liberal view, whereas uh, the view that, well, the world is changing and that's okay is associated with conservative politics. I'm not sure it's that cut and dried. Paul Hawkins? Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know of any liberals who say that uh, I think liberals are people who are freaked out about the uncertainty going forward, not about they want to preserve the glaciers. They want to preserve the, the biodiversity. The well, everybody one. does. Nobody, there's nobody who says, I want to get rid of polar bears and glaciers and biodiversity. There's not, you know, so they're expendable. Uh, what I think, but, but that can manifest itself as sort of a sentiment, but I think really what they're saying, these are biomarkers or these are markers of change. 
and that we better pay attention to them because they're talking to us very loudly. But I don't really see that conservative liberal flip. Maybe you do. Andy Revkin? Well, maybe in a different way. Um, there are um, liberals who uh, have a, a um, sense of wanting to go back to a simpler, smaller, um, static world that's essentially the vision we all grew up with of the uh, bucolic human relationship with a low-technology environment. And maybe that's the, uh, yeah, the idea. And I, I have seen resistance to t- the role of science and technology as a, a driver of the new relationship we would have with the climate mm-hmm. system from some uh, longtime friends who are green with a capital G. Right, that might be what he's getting at. And um, and there then conservative, well, libertarians particularly have this, you know, free market, free enterprise, frontier quality that might be, uh, the, the different aspect of it. So, but again, it's, it's complex. I think there's a, there's a mix out there on, on both of those things. Let's have our next question for uh, Paul Hawken and Andy Rebkin. Uh, in terms of the communication framing of the climate change dialogue, is the prevailing paradigm of the doom and gloom narrative uh, detrimental to moving forward? And in fact, is there a, a significant need and what mechanisms are in place to help move that more towards an opportunity-focused as uh, opposed to the negative focus that seems to be dominant right now? Yeah, Paul Hawkins. Uh, absolutely. In fact, that's I'm doing two books right now to address that. I mean, we started thinking about climate change at, at Stanford Research Institute in the 70s, so been watching this for a long time, and also watching the response, the the way the media is batted about, way people have not responded, the way it has been taken up and then pushed back and polling, and just it's just as a writer, I, I'm always watching mostly and reading and just like, huh, wonder what's going on, you know. And but in the recent years, the what I call the catastrophization has, you know, made me think. Wait a minute, we need to reach out and talk about this in a way that isn't about blame game, shame, you know. I mean, blame and shame and and, and guilt and and finger pointing uh, and linear asymptotes to hell. You know, they're not linear, really, they're asymptotes. But you know, the the allegory stepladder, you know, to Venus, and which it was in the movie, and and really sort of. You know, parse that and break that open in such a way that it's not whistling past the graveyard of the science, not at all. In fact, it, it, that's it's critical, but it's really going in to the the, the 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 humanity and saying, "Look, look, we're not that stupid, and we're not. We're 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 problem solving animals. We're we're ingenious. And I think if people understood what is coming, both technically." technologically, but also in terms of social technologies. And they're not coming, they're here, but they're just small and don't rise above the horizon so we don't know about them, but they're happening. If people could see that and have a sense of, of us, you know, I think they would change their opinion uh, about uh, the future. And I think they'd also change their opinion about the acceptance or the embracing of a science. So the science would be fully embraced as opposed to, you know, gained or dodged or sort of pushed away because it's just overwhelming. And this sense of overwhelm is simply not effective uh, in terms of enlivening and engaging people. And that is what we have to change. And that takes a different conversation, a different form of communication. Uh, and that's what I'm striving to do in the two books. They're called Carbon the business of life, and the other one's called drawdown. And what I'm saying is, why do we want to stabilize at 550? <laughs> 550 parts per million. 550 parts per million. It's like, that's not stabilization, I can tell you that. That's like chaos. And um, so why don't we have a, a name for where what we want? We really want drawdown. And I actually feel like we're going to achieve it. We're going to achieve it with what we know, and we're going to achieve it with what we don't know, because we're moving towards something you know, and we make the road by walking, as Machado said, and that road is full of innovation and imagination and changes and transformations that none of us can predict. Who could have predicted this world today three years ago? So much less 10, 15, 20 years from now. There has to be some faith in each other. You know, and what I see is more and more people, you know, just coming in, coming in, joining, coming in, and it's growing and expanding. People say, you preach to the choir, they I don't know, the choir is getting really, really big, you know, and it, and it really is growing. Andy Rifkin? Yeah. 
Well, the one thing I would add, I had a valuable conversation with Matthew Nisbet, who's a communication professor at American University, and we both settled on one reality that I think hasn't sunk in, which is that climate change, um, this tendency to express it as a uh, fight the climate crisis, solve the climate crisis, uh, neglects the reality that it's much more, it'll become much more like public health or poverty. It's an issue that you work on. It's not, we don't, we're not going to solve poverty. Although we're getting close globally, we get, we're sort of see a direction to go in. Um, but you, you, ha- it's like one of those things you work on. It's a, it's an issue, not a crisis. And you write about being urgent and patient at the same time. Urgency you? and patience. Is there a way to combine those two characteristics? I think there, there Patiency. is. Patiency. Yeah. Ooh, I like it. <laughs> you must be a writer. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One for Paul Hawkins and, and Andy Rutkin. Thank you. Um, as you mentioned, it's difficult for an individual to make a difference and have an impact. And we've talked a lot about the social changes and individuals coming together. I was more curious about what you see that companies could do or big business or having an impact. Um, You talked about the different wedges that come together that can make a change. You said quite a few of them are all focused on something a utility could do. What type of, what would it take to make a change for them? Paul, you're an entrepreneur, starting companies. Yeah, I mean, the reason uh, the the book Drawdown is actually created by uh, NGOs, institutes, academic departments, and trade associations about specific technologies, either social, they're all state-of-the-shelf, they exist right now, they're metric, they're measured, they're done. You say if it's happened, it's possible. So all these things are present and current right now. And we put them together. And some of them relate to business, some relate to utilities, some relate, as I said, to cities and farmers and individuals and, and neighborhoods and communities. Uh, you put them all together, you have this amazing, you know, sort of rainbow spectrum of, of, of initiatives that are in place today to make an individual not feel powerless. And in terms of the companies, there's two areas they, they can do, two ma- basic areas. One is reimagine what they do. Because is it really, are they a hydrocarbon business or an energy business? That's, those are two different definitions of a business. If they're energy, we need them. If their goal is to extract every bit of hydrocarbon from the lithosphere, we have a problem. And so, so they can start to redefine their, their mandate uh, and their mission. Second, companies are extraordinarily innovative. Some big ones are, some small ones are, some in between. Innovation happens not just with small entrepreneurs. Uh, It happens at Siemens. It happens at large corporations as well. But really to foment innovation, and you foment it by having a workforce and a CEO uh, and a C-suite that is really literate and informed and, again, lit up, and I think about, hey, look, this is for real. Let's get on it. Uh, and, you know, I just met a, a refrigeration company that isn't above the horizon. They replace compressors and uses electronics. You understand what that means? It's like that's a 90% reduction in energy for refrigeration, and it works. So I'm just giving that as one example of so many things that are coming down, multiple pipelines uh, that are transformative on a practical level, and but also social technologies like sustainability streets in Australia, where whole streets, the streets in the suburbs in Australia are more diverse than ours, you know, older, younger, you know, I mean, just the, the for Australia, that is, the more diverse. And what they're doing, saying, we're going to make the whole street about sustainability. They take down fences, they, you know, bolster their cisterns, they start carpooling, they start taking care of each other's children, do gardens across the lawns, and start working together as a small community. And the esprit de corps, and the morale and the change that those have has occurred in those streets, you know, is extraordinary. And other people are looking like they're having a really good time over there. We want to do it too. And and this is again, this is humanity at its best, and it's happening more and more and more, and it's happening in companies. Let's have our last question. Welcome to Climate One for Andy Revkin and Paul Huckin. Hi. Thank you. Andy, you just talked about how the uh, rate of the Earth's temperature increase has slowed over the past 15 years. Can you? Uh, also talk about the effect of global warming on the Earth's oceans temperature? Well, the biggest impact on the oceans is um, acidification. The, the change in pH from carbon, get carbon, car- carbonic acid 
build up in the seas will probably be the most consequential aspect. There is a lot. What happens, by the way, one of, one of the things that leads to variability in the temperature of the atmosphere is that the oceans are a huge sink for heat. And that's been known for a very long time. Uh, something like 90% of the heat that has been trapped so far by the buildup of greenhouse gases uh, has gone into the seas. And that's that's the putative, one of the explanations that's been put forth for why there is a pause. Although there, it's a competing, there are many competing ideas uh, for why we've had this particular variation at this particular time. I'd like to end by, thank you, I'd like to end by asking you what you have done to reduce your own carbon footprint and what's the next step you will take to reduce it further? Andy Revkin? I've gone in the other direction the last two weeks. Uh, I've <laughs> flown to Asia twice. Um, although I will say those are my first trips to Asia, so my overall carbon footprint is uh, pretty small still. Uh, we retrofitted our house a couple of years ago to try to, you know, we have a middle-class income, and we try to do what we can to limit our um, energy use, and that's a big thing for me. And the next possible thing, what's the next step up the ladder for you? To, to fly less. That's a tough one. Yeah. Paul Hawken? Um, solar on my roof, so I don't use electricity from the grid. Um, <clears throat> an organic farm, which is carbon farming, so it sequesters carbon. Um, a really cool bike, which I <laughs> go to work with, <laughs> and other places. <laughs> um, my food, the food I eat, is low uh, on the food chain. Um, so I don't eat beef and pork and lamb unless somebody serves it to me as a guest, and then I feel it's inhospitable to reject it, but at home I don't. Um, and those have a really high footprint. So uh, buying food locally, too, as well, uh, although some discussion about that. Um, and uh, I buy clothes, use clothing. <laughs> I look like it too, don't I? <laughs> I love thrift shops. And, um, uh, see, the button came off. Of my <laughs> anyway, um, and so and buy a lot of. I buy used books. I don't buy new books. Um, and etc. Et I mean, no, I depend on people buying my new book. I buy, <laughs> I buy, I buy used books, so uh, I could go on and on. There we go. We have to end it there. Our thanks to Paul Hawken, author and entrepreneur, and Andy Revkin, writer for the New York Times.Earth blog. I'm Greg Dalton. Thanks for coming to Climate One today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.